This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 118 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. This week, with the help of special guest Jesse Quack, we discuss the second half of James S.A. Corey's 2011 sci-fi novel, Leviathan Wakes. We're delighted to welcome back our guest from last week. Jesse Quack is the author of the supernatural thriller From Earth and Bone and the Durga System series of gangster sci-fi novels and the productivity guide From Chaos to Creativity. Welcome back, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Here we are again. All right. So I was I can't help but think about uh, how this project had we had we covered the book as we normally do the book and then the show, how mm-hmm. we would have just like it would have been a disaster because there's so much that happens <laughs> in this. There's I think yeah. I, and I'm just guessing here. There's another season of television to be made just out of this half. Like I think season two is just going to be the adaptation of the rest of this. <laughs> Yeah, I, I feel similarly. I, I have heard that I think it goes up to about episode five. So I think it's technically about half a season. Um, I am curious, though, because it feels like it could have been a full season. So I'm wondering I'm wondering how that's going to look. But yeah, it would have it would have been it would have been an issue. Yeah, that's my recollection of season two is that it it takes about half of the season to finish up the rest of Leviathan Wakes. There is an interesting um decision there about like what makes for a good kind of containment of a story because you would think trying to have a a story for a book and having a story for a season of television should be roughly approximate but they made the decision to only go up to where they did in the show Uh, and yet James S.A. Corey thought that they needed to go through all of that um, to tell like a complete book Um, do we feel like now that we've read the full book do we feel like the show um, left like halfway through or does it feel like the the first season was kind of self-contained I guess for me just thinking of it if you if you, I guess it's the same way with the show but like if you're writing a if you're writing a novel and this is just speculation because I haven't you guys are more <laughs> tell us I'm about sure writing a novel James. yeah let me let me tell you something here let me let me book explain <laughs> this to you real quick uh the uh I would assume that like with a novel, you're going to want to tell the entire story that you have. Um, Whereas like with a season of television, you can kind of hold out. Uh, I just think that they knew going into the show that they had the material for a season two and and kind of felt that because it it didn't feel like we got half of a half of a season in the show. Yeah. No, it did feel it, it felt like a complete story ending on a cliffhanger that was obviously going to take you to the next part of that story. Um. And they did, of course, bring some of the, some things that happened after the midpoint of Leviathan Wakes, like earlier, like when they go visit the Scopuli, and that right. takes place before they go to Eros in yeah, the show. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, but it did feel like the book had a much stronger character arc, and it ended when the characters kind of had all completed their journeys in a way, whereas it felt yeah. like the series, it ended on a good stopping point that'll make you come back for season two as a cliffhanger yeah yeah mm-hmm. how, how do you handle that in your series jesse just out of curiosity do you do you feel like you like to stop on a cliffhanger 
um, in order to entice people on? Or do you like to have completed arcs um, so that a book can be kind of self-contained? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the series that I'm working on now is it's a five book arc. So that does make it a little tough where, you know, I like right now I'm working on book four, which is all like lead up to the, <laughs> the final battle of book five. So it's kind of mm. like it's been hard to take these slices out and make them into individual books because I am trying to make each one have its own arc. Um, The first book in the series I tried to make as complete as possible because I don't, I hate the experience of being brought into a series and being like, oh, now I have to go read the rest of it because they ended like on a cliffhanger without resolving anything. Um, So I made the Mm -hmm. first book very complete um, with opening a can of worms that you can, you'd be like, oh, I want to know what happens there. I will read the next book. I want to follow these characters on their next adventure. Um, the second book is a little more cliffhangery. It's not, it's not terrible, but it's still like, all right, I, I really do want to read what happens in book three. Um, book three is very much a cliffhanger ending, but I figured if you're that far, like you're invested in the series. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I try right. to, well, book ones are, it's kind of a different beast, right? When you're, when you're that, that first one, you're trying to hook people, but you're also, like you said, trying to give them something satisfying. Whereas, yeah, yeah. when you're in book two, three, four, the rules are a little different there. I would imagine. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, and, and I'm sure this is something that you could track throughout this series. I haven't read more than the first book, so I can't comment on it, but I'd be curious if they always do this sort of like, big arc that wraps at the end of the book or if there starts to be more cliffhanger bringing into the next because there are some cliffhangers here don't get me wrong but um, most of the characters arcs sort of reach a terminus that that um, you don't always see in a series yeah each of the each of the books as i recall i've only read through book four but they feel very complete hmm that's good and there's interesting Um, stories that you want to follow to the next book you want to know what the next bit of the mystery is but it's not like they're leaving with somebody like in with a gun to their head and they're like, and see you next book. You're like, what? <laughs> right. Yeah. There's, there's cliffhangers that can be frustrating. And then there's some cliffhangers that I think like they're obviously cliffhangers, but it still feels fair to do. Right. Which I think that's kind of what the show did. It felt yes. fair, even though it was a cliffhanger to me, at least. I don't know. Reasonable people may disagree. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised at the scale that the book went for. And I think it was just the expectations that the show set up for me. Mm. And, I, sh- you know, I should have known better knowing that the the book continues, you know, season two continues what the book had going on with for the rest of it. And so, like, with the remaining, you know, chapter count or page count, I should have known there was going to be a lot more. Um, but I was kind of surprised when we were kind of rehashing some of the things that they did in the show. Like you talked about, Jesse, the scopuli stuff and that that stuff that they had already done i guess lulled me into a false sense of thinking that there wasn't going to be all that much story left and then it just went <laughs> bonkers and then yeah. it, was, it was really crazy yeah there's some big stuff that happens uh which by the way that's a good segue we're gonna we're gonna move through this thing through summarized paragraphs um i have four paragraphs of summary we're not gonna do chapter by chapter because that'll just take too long um but before we get into that i have a few sort of general things i wanted to get out there um, the first of which is I feel like I need to uh, formally apologize for mispronouncing <laughs> Amos's name. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I got called out uh, by a friend of mine, Curtis Chen, uh, who mentioned that uh, if I watched the show, they pronounce it as Amos. Um, and I watched the show, yet in that episode, I still called him Amos. Um, 
I think I called my mom as well. <laughs> yeah. I think we we I think we both did. I don't I can't remember. Like it's weird. I can't even remember if like Jesse, I don't know if you called him Amos or Amos. I don't even remember. Well, and I was there last night when we had this conversation with Curtis and um, <laughs> I have a cousin named Amos and so that's how I pronounce it. That's how I've always pronounced it. But my husband for some reason always pronounces Amos as Amos as well. And so I remember mm-hmm. listening to your episode and both of you pronouncing it Amos and me being like, oh, that's, why do some people do that? Right. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, it's like people who say Herm- Hermione or whatever, right? Yeah. I think it's like once you once you read a word, you just decide in your in your yeah. head how you're going to say that word. Um, yeah, that was, or not that was right. my defense. Well, <laughs> and I, I wonder, uh, like, so Amos is also a book of the Bible. And so that's, you know, I, I have a cousin named Amos, grew up in a church. And so, like, it's a very common mm. pr- word for me growing up okay. to hear. Right. I, well, and he mentioned fam- famous Amos cookies. Oh, yeah. The famous Amos a, cookies. <laughs> which I should have thought of. I didn't realize they were spelled that way. But, yeah, I should have thought of that. Anyway. Kind of not that important, but in case it's been grading on it, I'm sure it's been grading on other people. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to do my best. Amos is how I will try to pronounce it from now on. <laughs> um, the other thing, I wanted to give an update on where I'm at with Naomi and Holden. <laughs> nice. um, because I felt like that was kind of what we ended the last episode on. And um, now, granted that I, I still believe that book and show are very different. And I hold out hope that maybe I'll, I'll, I'll like it more in the show. But um, I don't really like where this goes in the book. It just it, mm-hmm. it never feels right for me. Um, it's okay. Like I don't hate it, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, it feels reductive to me for her character. And um, we'll get into it with some of the summary and stuff. But just in general, um, I, I yeah, I am not as big a fan of this romance. And and not liking it in the book also makes me kind of not want it to happen in the show. Even though like now I think it's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I feel like I'm still kind of undecided, but the show has pushed me more in your guys's direction. Um, she's just like a she's a different character in the book too. I mean, they they all are. It was yeah. actually stopping in the middle and then going and watching the show and coming back and reading the rest of the book. I was like, oh right, yeah, they all are kind of cardboard. All the the secondary characters. It really drove that home, but. She, I mean, there, there's a scene where, like, bullets are flying around, and she's, like, lying on the ground with her hands over her head, and she's refused to carry a gun in the book, and you're like, Naomi of mm. the TV series does not refuse <laughs> to carry a gun. She's not lying on the ground with her hands over mm-hmm. her head. Um, so I guess I was a little bit more forgiving of it in the book, just because I was like, ah, oh, maybe she's, <laughs> she's not too cool for Holden in the book, I guess. <laughs> I see. Like the character isn't as badass in the book, so therefore it's fine. <laughs> I mean, I, there is there is the scene that happened in the book where she says, "Like, I, I was pretty excited because I thought what was happening was she was gonna like turn him down because of the fact that he was like a a player and he was like having sex with all these people on the station and all this stuff." And she's like, "You don't actually love me. It's just that I'm the only girl left." And I was like, "Oh, cool. This is like a interesting dynamic that we're gonna get here." And then it just yeah. like pretend we pretend that that conversation never happened in like a couple. Well, later, later on, she kind of acts like that was an invitation. Like right. you heard me say that what, when you're gonna make your move, and I was like, right. "Oh, well." I was like, "Oh right. man." She was like, "Well, don't <laughs> tell me that you love me to get me into bed with you. I will go into bed with you." And you're like, "Okay," but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you kind of yeah, did make a big weird. deal about that. So yeah. I also wanted to get in, I, I meant to say it in our original book coverage and I forgot, so I wanted to make sure to mention it here. Um, James S.A. Corey, the pen name um, uh, that Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank use, 
they chose because they thought it would evoke the uh, space opera writers of old. I guess they had names similar to this. So the name comes from their middle names. So it's their two middle names, and then it's the first initials of, uh, I believe it's Daniel Abraham's daughter. Yes. So that's how they came up with this name. I don't know. I thought that was kind of fun. That, 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 that was how they pulled it. Uh, James, uh, if we were to co-author a space opera, what would our what would our James S.A. Corey n- name be then? We don't have a daughter we could pull pull from, but yeah. Um, let's think about it. Um, my middle name's Paul, so it'd be Paul. Um, and then let's go with I, I have two dogs, Nymeria and Tyrion. So let's go N T. So Paul N T. What's your middle name? My middle name is David. David. Paul N T. David doesn't have the same ring to no. it. <laughs> Paul David's pretty good though. Just the N and Paul David, T in there kind not of bad. don't work. Yeah, the same maybe way the N T are the wrong way to go. Paul David sounds <laughs> yeah. like the whitest white guy ever. <laughs> yeah. Paul <laughs> David. Well, I mean, so does James Corey. <laughs> yeah. And James Bailey for that reason. Jesse, uh, you you want to disclose your middle name? Lee. Lee. Yeah. Okay. It's L E I G H. Lee David. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> I just thought it'd be fun to, to kind of play around with that. But um, that's all I have. I think I'm ready to get into the summary. Do you guys have any other general stuff before we move into that? Oh, I actually have an answer for something you asked me last week since we were just talking about Naomi Ooh. and Holden. You asked who I would shape Naomi. Wait, wait, wait. You're going to refer to something we talked about in the last episode? We rarely do that. <laughs> <laughs> Are we fact-checking here? No, please, please do. <laughs> uh, not fact-checking, but just I realized I didn't actually answer this, but you asked who I would ship Naomi with, and there's a woman who shows up, an OPA woman who shows up in season two, um, played by uh, an actress, Kara G. Um, her name's Kamina Drummer, and I think she and Naomi would be real great together, but alas, spoiler awesome. alert, it is just my imaginary ship. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> we had a, a character, I believe, named Sammy show up briefly in the book. Oh, yeah. Um, a, 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 who was like a mechanic, a woman mechanic. I had on, hopes uh, for her, too. But <laughs> Yeah, I kind of I was like, oh, is this going to be a recurring character? Because, and it seemed like they had some chemistry. So I was kind of wondering if they were. And that was before I think the thing really took off with Holden. So I was still holding out hopes. But they didn't do any of that. And they just went with what kind of the expected route, I guess. Yeah. So I'm going to read some summary here, and we can kind of react to it and move through it in chunks. All right, so last we left them, we were in the middle of uh, chaos breaking out on Eros. Um, I think they had just been irradiated, uh, Holden and, and Miller. So Holden and Miller realized that the people in the shelters were infected with the same organism as Julie, and the radiation is being used to feed rapid growth. They witnessed the infected attacking the security forces and spreading the infection to anyone who had been able to avoid the radiation chambers. They escape Eros just as it is being overrun. Fred Johnson contacts Holden and tells him that the analysis of a data chip belonging to one of the dead marines from the Donager reveals that the mysterious stealth ships were built on Luna. Holden makes another public broadcast, sharing this information, hoping to ease the tensions created by the, his prior implicating of the MCRN. This strategy backfires, however, and the UN, fearing that they will be blamed for the attack on the Donager, launch a preemptive strike against the MCRN by destroying Deimos, I believe is how you say that, site of a Martian military installation. Okay, so let's stop there. That's a, a, a pretty a pretty good chunk. It's what actually did we think of... Deimos. I'm kidding. <laughs> Deimos? Is it? Deimos. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm burned. I'm burned now. <laughs> like, I'm the paranoid. I'm mispronouncing everything. Um, it, it is probably, yeah, Damus. <laughs> Damus Amos. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, what did we think of book version of this part of the story? And then moving into this kind of reveal of, of uh, the attack uh, from Earth and the UN against uh, Mars. I know it's talked about, uh, but... Holden is really re- like really quick to jump on that comms uh, system. <laughs> like yeah. he's like as soon as he gets information, it's going out there. And I know they talk about how like you know it's better to have it out there because then it's like getting the secret the secrets that people are trying to keep out there, and it kind of ruins their plans. But also, ultimately, like like you're putting everybody on edge, and like this is why attacks are happening. And like like he's kind of playing into we I think we learned he's kind of playing into the fact that it's supposed to be it's all a big distraction well it kind of reminds me of just like twitter right like something happens and now everyone's like freaking out on twitter and i kind of tweet about it immediately yeah Yeah. like don't don't react or like don't think about it just put it out there and then what people (laughs) see right is this like spike of like paranoia that happens at the initial thing and not the like rational reasonable response that happens later and so mm-hmm. that's always my, I'm just like, oh, Holden, <laughs> like, think about it first before you just put it on Twitter. But right. yeah, he just goes for it. <laughs> think before you tweet, guys, <laughs> come on. <laughs> I love that. I, I love, we we see Miller column on it here, which I really liked. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're kind of moving past the station stuff, but it's pretty similar to what goes down on the show, which we already talked about. Right. Um, but yeah, when, when, Miller, when Miller really calls him on it and says like, think about what you just did. And how that's going to, you know, what kind of effect that's going to have. And then even he immediately shows that, like, Earth basically immediately launches a preemptive strike. And people are dying. And it's interesting that uh, Holden's reaction is actually pretty, I don't know, I thought he really kind of deflects blame from himself. He's like, Mm -hmm. oh, I was just sharing the truth. I didn't make them do that kind of thing. I don't know. It's kind of weird. And it's and I think it's like the two different characters butting up against each other, like we talked about, like the different version of Holden this is versus what we get in the show. Yeah. Um, because the show version of Holden feels a lot more emotional. And I would have thought that he'd have a bigger reaction to all these people dying because of something he said. Mm-hmm. Whereas book Holden is a little quicker to just kind of say like, well, it's their their decision. I didn't make them do that. Right. I think he is. I mean, he is being rational in the way that it's you know like ultimately it is just getting information out there he's, he's being very like utilitarian i guess he's very much mm-hmm. like it needs to be out there if people mm-hmm. die they die um you know like this is what it is what it is like people need to know the information but it, and then right. it's similar to the can't to the can't message or remember the can't message right where we talked about his motivations seem different in the yeah. book versus the show and in the book it was very much like this is the information people deserve to know and he just sent it and he didn't really think about like how it was going to be interpreted. It didn't matter. He just wanted to get the information out there, and he does the same thing here. Yeah, he has a in the book a very like right versus wrong sort of character backbone. I mean, like Amos calls him righteous at one point, and they then go on to talk about that quite a bit, like how he's um, he's he picks the path that he believes is right, and mm-hmm. and then sticks very strongly to it, and is very convicted to that path. Um, whether or not that is the correct path or the smart path, I I feel like the book the book is trying to get us to believe that he is on like the righteous path and the things that he is choosing are for him black and white and 
so he's not necessarily seeing the consequences as consequences of his actions because he has to do this thing that he sees as right. Um, for me, the word righteous, I, I mean, I already mentioned growing up in a church, but it has good connotations, but there's also that, like, it makes me shy away if somebody is described as righteous or describes mm-hmm. themselves mm-hmm. as righteous. And just, it's a red flag for me. <laughs> yeah, it can be, like, it could be judgmental. Judgmental, it could be, it yeah. Could be, yeah, they could be wrong. It, you can be righteous about something you're wrong about, which is never a good combination, Yes, right? exactly, to me, it seems like if someone is overly righteous, they could be so passionate about it that they could be like blinded by this sort of like righteous path that they have, like kind of in the same line of what you guys are saying. Right. Well, or the uh, sort of inflexibility of that, right? Like uh, inability to see nuance, inability to to make compromise. If you're righteous, you're sort of very hard line. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of what you're getting at. And, and that can sometimes be an issue. Yeah. And and that's you know that does seem to fit this version of Holden pretty well. So I kind of agree with that assessment. I wanted to ask you about the fact that the UN launches a preemptive strike, and also to put it into context, something that I don't know that I really understood as much until later in the book was um, it was the UN and and the Martian forces are they're supposed to be coexisting and ruling over all of this area together. Like I kind of thought of them as separate forces that were always against each other, like sort of like leaning on each other uh, for vying for power or resources or whatever. But it's very ultimately like from what I'm understanding, it's more of a civil war than any, than any sort of like war on, on two different sides. I think it seemed to me a bit more like a a cold war than a, than a partnership. I guess that that's Mm. the impression that I had of like earth and Mars. Yeah, like there, there's tensions have been building, which we hear about, and uh, we know that Earth had been running simulations, and they, it seems like they're frightened of Mars, because Mars has the superior uh, naval force, and so they, they had run these simulations where they said, if we're going to have any chance if Mars attacks, is to get a preemptive strike in before they can muster their full power against us, and as soon as this message goes out, they, they, say, okay, it's time. It's go time. We got to do this thing. And so they launched that preemptive strike. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously they're all humans and they all, you know, they, you know, Mars, all the people on Mars came from earth originally, but, um, you know, or their ancestors did, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, uh, it is kind of a civil war if you look at it that way, because you also have this proto molecule, which we see is kind of an alien threat coming out now. So, uh, speaking of that, I think let's get into the next bit of summary. So Miller and crew follow the coordinates from Julie's phone and find one of the stealth ships called the Anubis abandoned. In the reactor room, they find that the same organic growth that was on Julie Mao's body has consumed the entire remaining crew of the Anubis and Scopuli, whom they had taken prisoner. They find a video explaining that the organism is a biological replication mechanism created by extrasolar aliens and placed on Phoebe, which was then launched into the solar system with the intent of reaching Earth and hijacking its early biosphere in order to create something, but was captured by Saturn's orbit, thus sparing Earth. Protogen, the corporation who had discovered the entity on Phoebe and dubbed it the protomolecule, orchestrated its release on Eros as an experiment to try and find out what it was designed to do. They had carried out a false flag attack on the Cant in order to start a war that would distract the solar system from what was happening on Eros. The Rossi crew nuke the Anubis and return to Tycho Station, where they discover the data is being transmitted from Eros to a secret protogen facility. They attack the station with the Rossi and destroy two stealth ships guarding it, 
and Miller and Fred leading a boarding party consisting of Fred's OPA soldiers who are able to capture it. So a good bit there, covering all the stuff on the ship, finding out about the proto-molecule, and then leading to them taking uh, this station uh, and, and, and killing some of these ships. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a pretty good chunk. What are we guessing at this part? As I was listening to this, to your um, summary of it, I, I love the idea that they picked Phoebe as like the missile that was launched into our solar system because my nieces and nephew have this like solar system memory game with all the pictures of the planets and like they're all like these beautiful smooth round planets and moons and then there's Phoebe which is this like weird little potato shaped thing (laughs) (laughs) you're just like where did that one come from so Mm. I just thought that was fun that's cool yeah that is fun I loved a lot of this stuff with uh you know we've talked we talked about like threads that that clearly they, they told a complete story, but there are threads that are lingering, I think, here. And this sort of idea that aliens had plans to change you, the human race at an early, you know, at an early time. And then this sort of trap that they lay, or this weapon was c- captured by Saturn. Like, all this stuff is just so fascinating to me. I, I thought it was all really cool. Yeah, and, and uh, this is our first time we've been... We've been told essentially that this mm-hmm. is this is aliens, <laughs> um, which up till now we haven't really known. It's been a mysterious thing, but we we in, and we, I, I assume everybody suspects it's some sort of alien thing. But there's also a potential that it's a human developed bioweapon. So we hadn't confirmed it. So does that change this story for you in any fundamental ways, or did it feel like it was all within the realm of the world they had established? I mean, I think it has to change your your feelings on the story fundamentally just because like it, it totally changes the playing field knowing that there's something else out there and, and they're a threat. But ultimately, like I think it's in fitting with the story. I kind of always assumed there was some alien stuff going on here. Yeah, I agree. I think there was always in the back of my mind as I, I'm and obviously I'm trying to remember the, like the first time I read this as opposed to the reread. Mm. But um, there there was always in the back of your mind like okay what what is this weird thing it's already starting to do you know crazy stuff like is it some bioweapon that somebody's made is it something from outside our solar system um so i think it wasn't necessarily a surprise for me reading that the first time but it was like oh, okay but why <laughs> it just feels <laughs> yeah. like this whole section is like wait but why but why that exactly. but why that okay we have an answer but why that yeah <laughs> it's a pretty intricate plot because we have the idea is that Protogen ki- like destroyed the Cant um, for the express purpose of being a false flag attack to fuel fl- fuel this war to be a distraction from them studying era. Like it's a pretty convoluted plot, but I think it all holds up. Um, I-, I mean, this is something that impresses me because this is a very hard thing to do in a book like have all these moving pieces and then have them all line up in a way that is believable because i don't know about you but whenever i start going through my plot i'll always start to go like is this even remotely believable or does this fall apart and it can be hard sometimes to judge your own plot in that way so i'm sure you have to run it by people but i don't know i was impressed with this it's it's pretty intricate yeah totally i mean although it does feel so my husband is the one that reads my books as a beta reader and pokes holes in my plot. And so he's always like, mm-hmm. so this is a really cool action sequence that you've got here. And this is awesome that this thing's happening, but like, does that really make sense? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to justify it. And he's like, okay, mm-hmm. but it doesn't because why would they have done this really complicated <laughs> thing in order? And why wouldn't they have just done this really straightforward thing? And I'm like, because it makes a better story. And <laughs> I do never remember, a good answer. <laughs> yeah. But I do remember when we were both reading Leviathan weeks, he's like, 
so <laughs> I'm like, don't poke holes in this. It's already done, and I'm enjoying it right now. <laughs> you can't turn it off. <laughs> you can't turn it off. So I was like, why did they do this stupid, complicated thing instead of just like not yeah, doing something simple? Because it's a better story. Yeah. Turn your brain off and enjoy the yeah. story. Anyways, my books are better for it, but. <laughs> You only have to get like a certain way there. Like you don't have to get a hundred percent. Like exploring, you don't have to explain every alternative they considered and why they chose not to go down those routes because that is boring and no one wants to read that. But if you if you propose something that's plausible enough, that's like okay, they landed on this as their decision, then I think most readers and most viewers or whatever will forgive you and go with it. But right. you know that's going to vary from person to person. And it's it's fast-paced enough and interesting enough that you don't look behind the scenes too much you know Mm. it's when you start finding yourself being like now why did they do that because they could have done this then you're bored and that's not a good story so i feel like i feel like they passed that test of like i didn't stop and think why this very much yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, you guys are making me like an extreme example of this to, to me is like if you're watching a really schlocky like bad horror film and like you know, the characters do something that's just like completely implausible, just for the for the moment that's gonna come when the murderer comes around the corner and like just mm-hmm. murders somebody in some incredible way that everyone's really shocked by and everything. It just it just makes me think of some like something like that that doesn't service the plot really as much as it does you know deliver some spectacle. Right, which is <laughs> I mean that's the viewer experience too, right? Like the viewer or the reader experience. Like I mean, there's part of it that I think. If the story is good and the you're enjoying the experience of reading or watching this thing, like it doesn't really matter if the plot doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and not saying that yeah. this plot doesn't make a lot of sense, but in a general term. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think that's true. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think this does hold up pretty well. Um, now, I haven't, I just finished reading it today. So I haven't really gotten a chance to like fully digest and think about all the nuances. Maybe mm-hmm. there are other things that would have made more sense. But it seems plausible enough to me where I was willing to just go with it. Um, and then honestly, it was just more of like a professional admiration of like, this is a tough thing to pull off. And I think they pull it off well here. So kudos. Now, I don't know about you guys, but just knowing uh, from our coverage that that this you know they started they sort of started to realize that they had a story to tell um while while crafting a a tabletop game of some kind Mm -hmm. uh how much of that were you thinking about during the reading because i (laughs) found myself thinking about it a lot um in terms of things that were happening i was like so like was this still a holdover from the game or was this something that they crafted after the fact i don't know i just kept thinking like where they came up with certain things and what what would fit in a game oh your ship blew up now you have to go visit taiko (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, I don't know. It's it's hard to differentiate. Um, there are definitely a few things where I remember thinking like, this is not, this is not something that would ever happen in a tabletop game. You know what I mean? Like yeah. every now and then a moment like that would happen, but then there's a lot of stuff that totally would, you know? So it's, it's kind of hard to say. Um, but uh, speaking of, uh, of kind of the fun action sequences, um, that maybe, or maybe not could, could come out of an art tabletop. Um, the, the attack on the station, I thought was really fun, right? We, we get Rosie doing some cool maneuvers, pulling high Gs, and it happens a lot in this book, but it's always fun when it does, and they're they're drugging themselves to stay awake, and we, we get a lot of discussions of, like, eyeballs changing shape and, like, all this stuff that'll happen <laughs> to you at high Gs, right? Like, and it'll give you a stroke and, like, all this stuff that's, you know, bad. Um, and then the, and then the Rosie gets shot to shit, but they are able to kill, you know, to destroy. I keep using kill because that's what they say in the book. Um 
but it's funny because I wrote down like I thought it was kind of weird that they always say that um, and that they should be saying like destroy because it feels weird to say like you kill a ship. Um, well, you, I feel like with naval does. with like a naval battle, you would say kill as well, right? Do you? I think I always feel like you say you you would you sink them, right? Like I guess you didn't say like the Titanic was killed when it ran into a. <laughs> no, I think you know what specifically I mean? like, in in battles though. I think I, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe I'm wrong. The I thought that it was some sort of like yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, that iceberg killed the hell out of the Titanic. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, and I see what they're going for, but I, I would be curious if anyone um, is like in the Navy who listens to write in and let us know, like, yeah. does that seem weird to refer to, like, you kill a submarine or you kill a ship in, in combat, or would you say you destroyed them or you sank them or, or, or some other term? Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I'd be I, curious I, to know. I don't know. I'm sure. I feel like it's more informal, but it's. I think it has something to do, and this is just speculation again, but... Uh, the, you know that you name a ship a ship has a name and it's like it sure. seems like people refer to it in in like more of like a personified way than you know just a just a thing that they're floating on so i don't know maybe it has something to do with that no i think you're right and for the most part it worked there was i think the one moment where it seemed weird to me was when he was describing all of the ships getting shot down over mars and he literally said like all these ships getting killed and it just felt weird that it was like it was focusing on the ships <laughs> Yeah. and not the people right. and then i think after that he says and the people on board but like just that first sentence of like all these ships getting killed i'm like what so it's just a felt like kind of a bizarre way to describe it when you say it now it kind of sounds like an eight-year-old is saying it right and then the ship got okay. killed <laughs> so, yeah, it sounds a little weird <laughs> now granted these guys aren't military so maybe maybe that may although one of them is former military or maybe more than one of them but still it's it, it, i don't know it's a little odd anyway Total total a tangent we're going on there. What were we talking about? Oh, the attack. So, what did you guys think of that of that whole the scene, the you know the 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 shootout? I really enjoyed the uh, the whole action sequence there, and it I thought was a really good example of another thing that I really admire about their storytelling, which is the going back and forth between Miller and Holden, chapter by chapter, and weaving this mm. story even even when they're going kind of in different directions, even when they're coming together. And always making it work to tell like this part from Holden's point of view, this part from Miller's. And in this section, of course, Holden's up on the, Ro- the Rossi and they're off shooting stuff and having big hygiene maneuvers. And then Miller's with the crew that's actually like attacking the station. And so you're seeing, getting to see both sides of this battle. Um, mm-hmm. So I just, I thought they did a really good job of using those two narrative points of view against each other and to give you a bigger story just throughout the book like that's that's a hard thing to do too oh absolutely this is kind of off topic a little bit but i wanted to ask you guys based on uh, like something about this story the way that it's told in comparison to the show and i think it's because a lot of the like uh jesse like you talked about a lot of the characters the secondary characters are more cardboard um a lot of this story because it's so miller and holden centric it was making me think about how much I'm looking forward to seeing these characters go through some of these events um, and having the full cast of characters kind of reacting to to a lot of this stuff. Do you, do you know what I mean? So like this kind of feels like, um, and it's probably going to sound bad, but it sound it's kind of, it kind of feels like we're getting like plot points in anticipation of seeing like the characters go through it where we, and we do get it, but I feel like it's very much like more Miller and Holden that we're getting the viewpoint of. So you're looking forward to watching the show and getting to see what all the other characters experience? Yes. Yeah. 
No, totally. I well, completely it, understand that. It's interesting <laughs> because um, this is the this is the first book in the series, and they only have two POVs other than your prologue and your epilogue, right? And um, I know this isn't a debut novel for them, although under this pen name, it is their first. So I don't know. Maybe some of the rules still apply, but I I often get this advice when you know you talk to authors and they'll say. Uh, try and keep your number of POV characters down in the first book you write. That's a, a trap a lot of writers fall into is, is having seven or eight POV characters in their, their debut, or trying to have that many in their debut novel, and it's just very hard to manage. Um, but it's a long book, and so at times it does feel a little claustrophobic almost to have only these two POVs, and um, I didn't really think about this at the time, but now that we're talking about it, like it can feel a little contrived that they are getting either Miller or Holden involved in every major event or both um, throughout this entire series. And it's a bunch of major events and they're, they're always involved. One of them's like on the ground or one of them's in the ship. And um, when you only have two POV characters, that's your only option. So you're kind of be, you're kind of forcing yourself into that mold. Um, so I'm just curious, do you remember how many POVs this widens out to like even roughly? Um, I don't remember specifically, but I would say probably between three and five per book for the next ones like three and five and then they hold it that throughout or does it continue to add um i think they hold it that throughout i think for the next books they'll add like characters that are really only in that book well you said like a uh, uh, christian avasarela or i i'm, I'm sure i'm butchering oh, that one a hundred percent i've been butchering that one since day one <laughs> um are they a pov character in next book yes yeah Okay, well, there you go. So that's at least an, another one. <laughs> um, interesting. Any, anyway, so again, kind of a tangent. I, I did want to mention here, um, I, there was a moment that I really liked where, and then and I thought it was just going to be kind of a cute moment, honestly, to, to kind of reduce it. But um, it actually does come back and actually be really important later. Um, Holden essentially tells Miller, like comes up to Miller and he's like, hey, where are we going to meet up after this is over? Because I want to, I got to make sure all my crew... Are, are, are like get, get out of this ride because I don't trust everybody and Miller realizes that he's being considered one of the crew here and then he like he has this like feeling in his chest and then he walks away and he like actually tears up and cries yeah that was um, kind of charming and that was a really touching moment yeah um, and then and then we know that it comes back here in this next section which we can get to um, and if you guys are ready I'll read the I'll read the summary but then we can touch up on um, how that how their relationship changes so the lead scientist, Anthony Dresden, reveals that all of the scientists on the station had been, quote, modified to remove, remove ethical restraints so that they could emotionlessly perform their research without empathy for the victims on Eros. He emphasizes the importance of understanding the protomolecule not only for its innate scientific value, but to protect against the clear threat presented by the aliens who created it. Realizing that Dresden's rationale is likely to be accepted by the powers that be on Earth and Mars, and his research will be allowed to continue, Miller shoots Dresden without warning, angering Holden. Quote, he was going to get away with it, Miller explains. So, that's perfectly setting up what we're about to talk about. This changes their relationship going forward, but also a, a pretty dramatic moment. Um, what, did, what did you think of this moment? What did you think of Dresden and his sort of spiel he gives? It's a very James Bond villain sort of spiel, you know, that like, this is why we did it. And this is why you should all be on my side. But and I, I think they get away with that by just showing how arrogant he is and how he does actually believe in his mission. Um, mm -hmm. I'm so curious about how the 
the scientists were modified. Like, I, I don't know. That just, yeah. it's such a crazy thing to me. Like, and such a surreal, like, horrible thing to think about. Like, a bunch of people who have probably consensually, I don't know, said, yeah, yeah. fuck with my brain so that I can <laughs> kill people without remorse. Yeah. I, and they talked about it earlier as well, right? They they said like, oh, how could they how could they ever have this group of people that go that would go along with all this stuff? And then you know we come to find out that they're modified. Uh, pretty crazy to think of technology getting that far, or I guess medicine. So I have a couple thoughts about this. Um, one, you know, I think it's possible to do this. Um, I know that there are parts of the brain that when get damaged, people do lose empathy and they lose their ability to like feel certain emotions and stuff like that. So I think it, I think it's possible that they could do this, um, but on the other hand, I don't know that it is actually necessary, because if you look at human history, we've seen that people are fully capable of this sort of shit without being modified. Now maybe there's some selection that goes into picking them, right, or or, or self selection of the kind of people who volunteer for this sort of work. But uh, you have to look no farther than Nazi Germany to see plenty of scientists who were doing horrific things, um, and they weren't modified. You know what I mean? They didn't have their brains tampered with. They just did that because there are evil people out there and there are people out there who can um, think of other people as lesser enough to where they don't feel empathy for them. And we've already established that a lot of people from Earth feel that way about belters. So I actually don't know that it was necessary to go down this route. Um, And in fact, it kind of took away a lot of the like, um, blame because it's like oh well they weren't in their right mind so you can't really blame them um, and, and it, it kind of put all the blame on this one guy um, which was kind of convenient um, and a little Bond villainy like you said. That's a really good point I hadn't thought about it that way but that is way more horrifying <laughs> <laughs> yeah and maybe they just didn't want to go down that route I don't know <laughs> but it is also kind of fun to think of this guy like going in and altering all of their brains just to get them to do this thing um, but it is it does make him kind of the figurehead and the ultimate person responsible so that when he gets shot by Miller, we are all cheering Miller on so much so that honestly, because of all this, it made me really kind of like, I don't know. I disagreed with how Holden handled all this. Um, Cause I felt like he was being way over the top about like, Oh, I can't trust you anymore. I can't trust you around my friends. I don't know how you're going to, I don't know who you're going to kill next. I don't know how, you know, it's like, come on, dude. Did you hear this guy's speech? <laughs> like it was, it was mustache twirling, you know, bond villain. It was very, very bad. And it was clear that people were starting to go, Oh, maybe not. I, I don't know. Like I, I felt like he was being kind of a jerk to Miller over this, that and it felt kind of unwarranted to me, but I, I am curious to know what you guys think. Like, did, do you agree that, this was him sort of showing that he's unstable uh, in a way. No, I think this is going back to the uh, Holden righteousness thing. I mean, and I think it's after this that Miller and Amos have that conversation where Amos talks about Holden being righteous. And I think as the reader, like you are on Miller's side. I mean, you're in his head when he does it and it Mm -hmm. just, it makes sense. You're already, you know, you're already empathetic to this situation and so I was definitely with you thinking that Holden's way of reacting, but it also seems very much in character. And I think this is maybe a moment that's supposed to be that, that final wedge that says, okay, this is the kind of guy that Miller is versus the kind of guy that Holden is. And this is what, like, Holden will never be able to cross that kind of line. And mm-hmm. two, I think something you said in the last episode about... um 
where is that character art going to go with Holden? You know, where where will this? How will he have to bend? How will mm. you know where where is the breaking point of this like righteous backbone or whatever? Like I think that's kind of what they're setting up. I mean, just just mm. from reading this book narratively. Yeah, just in terms of what we've talked about, this sort of moment that the author is hoping that you go along with, I think that this very much represents that. And we get this sort of, and it's very clearly to set up this moment that's coming up with with Miller and kind of like how the characters align nearing the end of the story and how everybody ends up. Um, But yeah, I I think in terms of a couple of things that I wanted to talk about, the Dresden stuff, I think that you're right, Luke, with the sort of like he, because even in him, even in his rationale, he had, he had this moment where he was talking about like, it's not even about all the experimenting that we can do on it in general. It's also like, we need to find out what the aliens are capable of. And I could see people going along with that, you know, like knowing like, oh, we need to know, we need to understand, we need to reverse engineer, we need to create weapons of our own based on this and that kind of thing. And I think he could have had people behind him, like you said, without modifying anybody. And then, uh, yeah, I, I think ultimately I understood like why Holden did this. Totally fit with his character. I agree with, I agree with you guys. Yeah, well, and, and so we should say what he does. Essentially, he, he uninvites him from the crew. <laughs> You're no longer part of my crew you're not going to be around the people I love. And he kind of sends him on his way, um, which really hurts him. And after we saw that moment where he cried because he had someone accept him for the first time, but he kind of knew this was going to happen too. Um, it was just sad. And like, I felt really bad for Miller here. And I think we're supposed to. Well, especially because then he goes off to like bunking with Diogo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We haven't talked about that yet, but that's one of my favorite like minor character relationships. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was fun. I agree. All right. So let's get into this final chunk. This is big. It's going to it's going to contain everything that happens to through the end of the book. um, And then we can kind of just react to the rest of it. So back on Tycho, Miller and Fred Johnson come up with the plan to attack Eros to prevent anyone else from trying to obtain a sample of the proto molecule. They intend to commandeer Tycho's main project, the massive Mormon generation ship, the Nauvoo and crash it into Eros at the correct speed and angle to propel it into the sun. Miller leads a team onto the exterior of Eros to plant bombs and detonate its ports so that no one can get in and sample the protomolecule before it is destroyed. He then decides to stay behind and die when they go off. Just before the Nauvoo impacts the station, the trajectory of Eros is inexplicably altered. Eros then sets out to Earth, the largest source of biomass in the solar system, at a speed that no human-made ship can match. Miller takes one of the bombs into the station to attempt to destroy its maneuvering capabilities. However, listening to the voices on the communication system, he realizes that Eros is being guided by Julie Mao, who believes she is racing. She finds He finds her infected body is the host of the parasitic relationship with the protomolecule. He is able to convince her to direct Eros away from Earth. The station crashes into the surface of Venus, where the protomolecule begins assembling a new unknown structure. And that's where we leave the end of the book. So, where do we want to jump in on this? A lot happens here. <laughs> I mean, this is what I meant about this this story going bonkers. Because I, I was, you know, because of the show, I was on, of the assumption that Julie Mao was not showing up in any sort of capacity. Uh, or I guess her body would show up, which it kind of does only her body show up, but she, 
no she but she actually shows up because she's like speaking and thinks she's doing yeah, something else it's like her it's like her essence or her her personality she's her still in there soul kind of. almost yeah yeah but yeah it's it's crazy like the mormon generation ship gets brought in and like yeah. they crash it and like the bombs that they, but they don't crash it it misses and it just goes off into space i guess i don't know what happens to that thing <laughs> right wait doesn't it uh they, they they so they wanted to hit eros with it and shoot it into the sun yeah, that was the plan, but right, then right. Eros jumps out of the way, and so right. Eros dodges. Yeah, then the <laughs> so Naboo crazy. is just like flung out <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. So crazy. Who knows? So hitting uh, hitting Eros and flinging it into the sun—that sounds so plausible. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, it seemed very elaborate, but okay, okay. So maybe this is starting to stretch a little bit, but it, I don't know. Maybe there's not a better way to do it. I, at the very least, they've established the Naboo has got very powerful thrusters attached to it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what they're using it as, just like it's going to push. Um, yeah. Because well, the, there's nobody on it. And obviously the oh shit moment of it dodging is showing us yeah. like no matter what kind of capability technology, technologically we have in this in this world or this universe, uh, it's nothing on this, this alien tech that they have or whatever sort of bio, like, you know, bio weapon they have here because it's like faster and like they talk about how like it like it has like a crazy way that it travels or something like that. Well, yeah, Miller's inside of it and he's like, it still has the spin gravity from Eros, but it doesn't have the gravity of whatever crazy speed that it's traveling at. Like right, the right. other ships can't even keep up with it without actually killing their crews because it's just going so fast and Miller's just like, oh, it feels like normal. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Yeah, which was so. bizarre. I kept thought I kept thinking that was going to be some sort of reveal, and in fact, I thought we were going to get um, we were going to get the revelation that that it actually hadn't moved and that it was like casting an image or something, and that that's why the gravity hadn't affected him. But instead, it just didn't it just didn't affect him, and we don't know why it didn't. Well, um, I think then yeah, it figured out a way to do it. I guess I think it's and I meant to mention this earlier, but like the idea of having the aliens introduced, but having them looming is, I think, obviously, the, I think you have to like build that up for a little while. And I'm glad that we don't just see aliens in this first book. And like if you build to it, uh, I think just having that threat looming is, is cool. But in, in setting up their technology and the fact that like they can travel at speeds that we can't and like they're not dealing with any sort of inertia or whatever it is, uh, it's just like they're they're like that threat becomes so much more um dangerous i think because we just like they could show up at any time and then they would just Mm. completely outclass anything we have and just devastate us yeah i think there's a line in there something about like these aliens were already demigods when humans were still like trying to figure out protozoa you know Mm -hmm. like we were (laughs) right still like thinking photosynthesis was a big deal (laughs) yeah yeah. right 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 right. (laughs) gotcha so i i thought a couple of things i have to mention here uh one one is i think we we talked about dead space um but it so it's very dead space it's also sort of like the thing another project we covered Mm -hmm. um it i I don't know i love this kind of alien it's an idea of it's like it's unknowable it's this substance that mimics the things it attaches to so in that sense, you can get away with a lot because any sort of humanity, any sort of human thought or motivations that you're detecting are sort of being absorbed by the things that it's mimicking. Mm-hmm. And so you can you can kind of play fast and loose with it in a way that I think is really fun. And um, and then I love the idea because I think I might have mentioned in the last episode that I was like, I wonder if it's going to take over Eros and then we're going to have Eros being kind of controlled by this thing. And that's exactly what happens here. 
Um, which also made me think of the fifth element. <laughs> Do you yeah. remember the the weird planet that's like coming at Earth that they're trying to stop, mm-hmm. and it's it's got some sort of intelligence, and they're talking to it and stuff. Yeah, um, I kept thinking of that here, uh, which I thought was pretty fun. <laughs> well, because then it's like they're listening to the feed of it and listening to it as, mm. basically as whatever the proto molecules trying to figure out how humans communicate, and it's just like recycling words and languages and playing with with sound and um i one of the things that i really loved was how the like young belters were remixing it with music and like making <laughs> yeah like, that was funny music like edm for their dance clubs and stuff like that <laughs> and miller uh, like I, I mentioned his friendship with this kid diogo and like they're sharing basically mm-hmm. sharing a, a bed and like one goes off to a shift and the other one sleeps and um and miller the whole time is just like kids these days and i loved that little relationship where diogo's like hey have you listened to this and miller's just like what what are you guys doing you guys are so strange this is fascinating so i I loved kind of his his old man looking at the kids these days friendship with Mm -hmm, diogo well and that all serves a narrative purpose too because it's all making miller focus on the sounds and the and the transmit transmissions that are coming off of eras and I, I sort of knew intuitively that something was like something's there. It's like either it's going to I, I thought that eventually it was going to start like they were going to they were going to write it off as nonsense and then it was going to start making sense at a certain point. Um, what I didn't see coming was that it was going to be the thing that breaks the whole thing open and is proof that Julie Mao is still uh, sentient within there somehow. And I love the way it kind of goes back and says like, oh, when it was mentioning this and that, it was all clues that it was actually Julie. Um, so I thought that was a really clever reveal in a book that's had a bunch of these sort of reveals already. And then to have another big one here at the end, um, I thought it was really fun. I really liked that. I had honestly forgot that that was like how they solved the problem of it. And so when he was like, <laughs> oh, this is, I'm listening to Julie's voice. I was like, oh, right. <laughs> he now has to go like reason with the alien who's still possessing. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. It is crazy that he's able to like convince her. Right, because her, right. her humanity is still there enough, I guess. So, so I, I, I was also thinking about how you, James, I think you said like I think this guy's gonna die. It might have been like two episodes ago or whatever, but you mm-hmm. were, you were, or maybe even just the end of the book episode. So I was like, I, I thought you were one hundred percent right, and you kind of are because he, I think he dies. I don't know if Julie was still alive though. Then he could still be too because we know he gets sort of the proto molecule gets into him, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting that I feel like both of us were kind of right because I had said I thought they were, like, going to do something new with him and take him in a new direction. And they kind of do, too, because he uh, he even says at one point that he feels like he's taken up her mission. And now mm-hmm. he is doing things he would have never done, but he knows she would have done it. So he's going to take up that mantle. Um, so he does that. And then he sort of has this tragic uh, potential death that happens at the end of the book. Yeah. I would say that like he probably died, but I'm not convinced that he. This is the last time we see Miller. In some way, I'm sure he shows back up. Uh, but yeah, I I I just thought when I when I said it, it was more specifically about like where the character was at and not necessarily the situation, because I I thought that they were setting him up to like because he was like dying of cancer or something or dying right, of radiation. Right. Well, the radiation. And all that, and the, so. Yeah. So he, I don't know, totally different scenario, but I guess technically similar outcome. But he was on a he was on a death wish path, 
like when you said yeah. that mm-hmm. and i mean he yeah. obviously still was like that's why he stayed on on eros is to die yeah he yeah. just stays there to die yeah right and, and, and it's sad because we know that like part of that is like holden kicking him off the the crew and and making him feel like he has nobody left right um and, and we, so that was another thing like that yeah. you know i had already said how low i felt like he was and it's just like blow after blow for this guy is just having a rough go of it and then yeah ultimately like that's why we don't just like turn our nose up at the fact that like oh he stays on the ship of course he stays on the ship because this is what's going to happen so a couple of other things to talk about one of them we got to touch back in on the holden naomi relationship <laughs> um i just wanted to point out there's a couple of like kind of weird semi-gross moments that happen uh, where yeah. where Amos uh, figures out that they're together, and then um, I can't remember if it's here or some other point. He says something like, "She's like my my sister, but I'd do her if she'd let me." <laughs> and I thought that was a really weird thing to say. <laughs> oh man, coming yeah. back to cardboard Amos was the worst. Like the rest yeah. of them were oh, just yeah. like okay, but after the after the series Amos coming back to the book Amos was just like oh my god <laughs> oh my god i yeah. totally agree like he is he's a he's a shadow of the version we get on the show oh yeah and it's sad to see yeah i i don't know i wonder if they i hope that they develop this character more throughout the books because i you know i wouldn't i don't know he seems less interest so much less interesting than, than book version or sorry than show version again i i'm really fascinated to just think about the process of these writers because they've gotten to the point where they got to have a second go of it. They got to have yeah. like a, a, they got to do a redo for some of these characters and like these situations. Um, so it's really interesting to think like, is that them, you know, is that the influence of a writer's room with them? Is that because clearly they're not like, they are influential for the show, but they're not cur- running the show. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, you would assume that there's some sort of input from other people or is this them basically saying like, this is what we would have liked to have done now you know, actually right. doing a redo, getting her. Yeah, maybe. Um, and then we also, uh, there's a moment where Holden sa- <laughs> Holden makes Naomi angry. And then he has this thought where he's like, oh, she's so cute when she's angry. And it's <laughs> like, it's so condescending and like gross. And I don't know. It's, it, it really made me hate the relationship because you wouldn't have that thought if you hadn't just slept with her. And I don't know. I, I, I thought that was bad. I did not like that at all. I think Holden <laughs> would have had that thought anyways, because he kind of already did have that like <laughs> relationship with yeah. women. I don't know. Like, I mean, it really doesn't seem like they'd be together unless they weren't. She wasn't the only person on the ship, the only woman on the ship, rather. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I don't need to keep harping on it. But yeah, a couple of those things just made it worse. It was like, I already wasn't a big fan. But then whenever that would happen, I'm like, oh, man, I really don't like it. I kept um, thinking about we, how you were a supporter in the show. And I was just like, he's going to regret that. <laughs> it's this, this is what happens when you come in and you start making bold statements halfway through a book or halfway through a show, right? Like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back to bite you sometimes. Like, I love this character who ends up being a huge asshole, like, next episode or next part of the book. <laughs> it happens. So let's talk about this uh, Venus situation, right? That's just okay. Like the... Well, before let me let me back up a little bit because okay. that's kind of the end here. But before that, I wanted to talk about this other Earth ship that is present that uh, Holden is having com- communications with the the captain, and they're like threatening each other, and they're like almost open fire on each other. And we see a lot of restraint out of Holden here, and I thought this was kind of a good moment for him, showing once again like why I respect him as a captain in the book a lot. 
And I think it's it's kind of a good moment where it's like everything, everybody else would have said, like, kill them now. But instead, he keeps holding off to, like, the last second, last second, last second. And finally, they, they decide not to shoot each other um, and sort of work together, I guess. It's interesting that so. the, the guy who gets on the comms immediately shows restraint in, like, a combat situation, though. Well, we also see a moment where uh, Fred calls and asks Holden to essentially sacrifice himself and his crew um, to try and keep up with Eros. And I thought it was an interesting character moment for Holden to not take that chance and decide to just power down and say, it's not worth it to me to sacrifice the crew in a chance, um, even if that results in Earth getting destroyed. I'm um, curious. This is a big decision. Do you guys think he would have made an opposite decision if he was alone? Like if it was just him and Fred had asked him to do mm. that? Yeah, I think so. I think probably, yes. I think it's the the crew, really. He's so biased yeah. to this crew. And, and it, you know, if there was a little bit more to some of these characters, I feel like I would buy it a little more. But he clearly cares about this this crew more than anybody else in the yeah. universe, it seems like. Yeah, and it's kind of the, it's kind of the um, anti- utilitarian view right like if, if the scientist is very utilitarian like oh what is what is 1.5 million deaths compared to the entire you know all of humanity throughout the solar system you know it's a drop in the bucket it's worth it to get to the bottom of this alien threat whereas holden's saying like i'm not willing to sacrifice these four people because i care about them too much even right. though if it means yeah. the entire earth the, not just the entire earth but like literally he's imagining his family being consumed Right. Yeah. And he's got a big family too. Right. Yeah. But, he, but I mean, and it's good to point out that it wasn't a sure thing. And he even realizes like, it's probably not even going to work. Like we're assuming that it can't go past a certain speed and it won't right. be able to outrun us anyway. Right. So probably if he knew yeah. that it was going to work, he would have like, yeah, it was a hundred percent thing, you know? Yeah. But risking, risking them on a chance that it did seem in character. And then we get this call from Miller <laughs> where he says, so I figured out that Julie's still alive and she's in here and she's controlling this thing and I'm going to go talk to her. And he's got he's got this like bomb. He's been lugging around with him on a, on a like a trailer not, or like a like a what is that? It was like cart a shopping cart. Yeah. Yeah. He's pushing it around. I don't know. It's really fun to think about that going through and he's going through this like. Hell, hellscape of, of of like a dead space level like there's just mm -hmm. growth everywhere all the bodies have transformed we keep getting them describing like a rib cage with an arm dragging itself around is something yeah. that they see a lot um or they saw once was, and just it, kept have to keep describing to us i think is what it well was. you see that kind of thing one time and you're gonna you're gonna keep mentioning it i think remember the arm <laughs> Um, and, and, and it just kept me thinking of how like in the book this is way more horrific and sort of like horror movie feels to it although they do talk about like blue fireflies and a blue glow but i was thinking about how the show turned that way more sort of blue sci-fi right and and less horror as as starkly it seemed like to me uh you know very crystally and and less uh, it's still gross don't get me wrong but i don't know it, it's just not the same as brown goo and and sort of the viscera and the the stuff that they talk about a lot here mm -hmm. it's just very grimy well because then miller's like he calls and he says, I need more time. I need to find Julie. And Holden's like, you've got yeah. 37 hours. And Miller's like, I need more time than that. And you're like, how much time do you need? And so then they have like three chapters worth of diverting the missiles and then like posturing with the other Earth ship and Miller's going through room after room. And I was like, couldn't we have just kept that 37 hour timer 
and forced Miller to come to the conclusion he eventually comes to and find Julie, like, you know, with five minutes left or something like that. But it's like, instead, they give him unlimited time and take away that time bomb threat, which I thought was a really interesting choice. Because that's what you, you know, mm. at the end of a book like this, you're like, here's my taking time bomb. You have 37 hours. And they're like, oh, you have unlimited time. Don't worry about it. Oh, <laughs> right. It's a lot of time. I think yeah. that's probably has to do with like cosmic s- scale, right? Like there, it's probably some sort of like they were doing calculations and they were realizing no matter how fast this thing's going, if it's coming from here to Earth, it's going to take time. <laughs> like right. it's going to take. Yeah. But it was just so like, how much like, longer does this book to... need to be? Like you have a ticking time bomb. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. In fact, I didn't remember that that was the time frame, but I, I believe you. It sounds right. Um but yeah, because it does, it, there is some time that goes by here. And I kept thinking, like, it's going to take him a while to traverse this whole station and find this one room where Julie is, which he does, by the way. And we should talk about, like, this really sort of bizarre tableau of, of Julie, but, like, her her hair is, like, crystals, and it's turned into this bed that she's laying on, and he compares her to, like, a mermaid. And he comes up to her, and he talks to her, and, and she's surprisingly cogent, I would say, and able to sort of have this conversation pretty i mean she's a little out of it obviously but um she's not like screaming in horror (laughs) or anything she like kind of is able to have a conversation with him and i did think it was a touching moment it was it was miller's arc coming full circle right like coming to its terminus he has found her at last he saves the world literally through what he does and but it's on a very personal level too because this is the woman that he has sort of decided he wanted to try and save and this is his chance to try and do something like that and he kind of goes down with her too takes like, his she's kind of become his patron saint at this point i think yeah i like that yeah and so he takes his helmet off and he breathes in the protomolecule which probably smart if you want to have any chance of surviving this <laughs> um and it's also like he's kind of like joining her in this i don't know um and then yeah, they they divert and they go to Venus instead, which I think James, you were you were going to say something about before I rudely interrupted you. No, I was just it was just that that's like the the cliffhanger. That's the, I wouldn't even call it a cliffhanger, but that's the thread that's left, right? That's like the biggest one I would say is like sort of like oh Venus is actively assembling a structure that's like slowly becoming bigger over time, and like you know, we don't really know what this, what this protomolecule is fully capable of. So I'm sure that that is not just there by coincidence. What do you think? Do you think it reaches out far enough? Do you think it continues to build this like crazy tower that reaches to another planet or something or <laughs> what happens No, here? so I, I think, and, and I'm going to speculate here and I know Jesse, you probably know the answer to a lot of this. <laughs> so Sorry that we're speculating on something you can't really comment on. But uh, yeah, it feels to me like this alien presence now has a home home world in the solar system. Yeah. And it's going to start building structures. It's going to start forming into something. Now, is it, is it going to reach out to via some sort of communications to the actual aliens who sent it originally and bring them into this solar system? Or is it going to be driven by Julie and possibly Miller? Are they going to be continuing to be sort of sort of sentience involved in the protomolecule planet? Um, I don't know. I'm really fascinated by this. I, I like the idea of it building structures on Venus and, and sort of like everyone's arguing about like, you know, what do we do now while it's sitting there, you know, claiming an entire planet for itself. And uh, it's clearly going to be a threat going forward that they're going to have to deal with. Um, so I, I think it's, this is like, this is almost not even a cliffhanger. Um, although it functions in that way, 
this is the kind of thing that like if you're gonna have a series you have to do this there has to be something that is like demanding the reader to come back and this feels very fair it had its own thing it you know and it was part of the climax and it got dealt with yet now it's changing it's like shifting into another phase and and the promise of the next book is that it's going to address that and that's what i think makes people want to read book two it, it works for me it doesn't really fit exactly but it kind of makes me think of stranger things the end of season one where will like coughs up that slug thing after everything's resolved and everything's happened he like coughs up this mm. slug and you're like oh there's still something it's it's you know it's not spoiler over yet. for stranger things i, I I'm assuming yeah, you're one of the most people have it. probably seen it yeah. by now. <laughs> Season one, like I think people have seen it. Yeah. What What are your thoughts on that, Jesse? I think it's a very good um, series book one um, in that it does the world has been saved, the two main characters, their arcs have been more or less completed. They've both come to some sort of, um, you know, self realization. You feel really good about the story, but holy shit, what's going on? I need to know what happens next. Mm-hmm. So I think that's yeah. that's a pretty classic way of ending a book one if you want to have a series that's successful. Yeah, what more could you want? Which, I don't know, uh, their series might be successful. You know, time will tell, I guess. Yeah, yeah it's doing all right. Uh, so I just want to take this moment to like think about um, our experience of the book and the, and the show, what we've covered here. Where this where this sits in the pantheon of sci-fi for us, you know, um, and and uh, I don't know, just kind of reflecting on on this coverage because we've spent, you know, we've spent James and I have spent four episodes, two with Jesse talking about this, and and I think uh, I think it'd be nice to kind of sum it up here and, and give our final thoughts on it before we put a bow on this thing. Oh, that's a big question. So, where does it fit in the pantheon of science fiction, and what has the experience been? Um, sure. I mean, I threw a couple of things at you, whatever you want to react to. <laughs> um, I think I was struck by what you said about them choosing their pen name to kind of harken back to this classic sci-fi era of these like, you know, big stories about small people doing like impressive things. And I, th- I think that they told that story really well. Um, mm-hmm. I enjoyed the hell out of it. I enjoyed the hell out of both the book and the series. And, um, I mean, I already mentioned a little bit, like, reading and watching them so close together gave me a very different perspective on, on both, um, which was which was really fun. Um, I have enjoyed this this trip back through these these <laughs> properties that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's the thing that we do all the time, and we do really enjoy it, you know? Uh, reading and watching things very close together gives sort of a unique perspective on them that you don't get otherwise. Um, and it's something that we found rewarding. I know throughout all of the things that we've covered on this podcast, definitely true here. Yeah. I wanted to thank you, Jesse, for, for kind of being our guide through this, that you've, you know, you've already, you already are familiar with this stuff. So thanks for bearing with our speculation and, and, you know, like giving input where we needed it, like Amos from now on, we'll, (laughs) we'll always know Amos. Uh, (laughs) well, we got to thank Curtis for that. Yeah. Uh, Curtis called us on it, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's, that's a mistake that, uh, Hopefully we've remedied this time by getting it right. But James, I'm not letting you out of the question, man. I want to know your take on it. Yeah, I'm ready for it. So this, okay. the, so in terms of, I, I like what Jesse was saying with sort of uh, the fact that she liked the, the the way that they chose their pen name because I do feel like this is such a, um, in terms of like a pantheon of of sci-fi, I don't, you know, I don't put it towards the top, but I do really enjoy it because I think it does what other 
ones that I do put up in the Pantheon, I think it does what those things, it picks, it cherry picks the things from those greats. And it, I think it uses it in very effective ways. So I think it's like, mm. uh, it's this great sort of sci-fi story that's referential, but also doing things that are new and, and it feels familiar, but also fresh. Um, and so I would just say it's really a serviceable show. I really enjoyed it. Um, and, and I like the books as well. I mean, if any, you know, if you need any sort of thoughts on where I'm at with it, like I'm going to continue watching the show and honestly, I'll probably read the books as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's close to where I'm at too. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. I think this is a better show than I kind of thought it was going to be. Um, I think this is one of those rare occasions where I lean more towards the show as far as like what I'm, what I'm enjoying, even though the show is far from perfect. Um, but I did really enjoy the books as well. You know, it's close. And I think from just the whole thing, if you look at it all as one, um, sort of canon, one, one thing, um, the world, um, and by the when I say the world, I, I know it's more than one world literally, but the world building that is done here still is, is the standout thing for me. And I can see how this is a, uh, property or an IP that people want to be in. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Uh, Jesse, uh, we went to Worldcon, I think, two years ago, and we went to an Expanse party. And um, it was funny because I felt like kind of an imposter because I'd never read it or seen the show. Yeah, it was like a Belter bar. <laughs> it was a Belter bar at Worldcon. People had, like, Remember the Cant. There was, like, a big banner up on the wall. And I, I'm sure there was other references that I didn't get. And they were speaking, like, in the Belter Patois, and they had all these different, like, fancy yeah. cocktails they were making. That sounds awesome. Exactly. That's cool. It was really neat. Yeah, and I remember thinking like, wow, people really care about this and they really are getting into this and and I can see why. You know what I mean? And and that's the thing that strikes me from this and I think is a lesson for anybody who's trying to write stuff like this is to to make your world rich enough and 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 deep enough that people can get invested in it like this because that's the ultimate sort of fan experience when people want to be a part of it. And um that's something that it seems like it's achieved uh, for me and, and just from what I've seen, you know, uh, from Worldcon and other things like that. So, yeah, I'm good. It's good stuff. I've really enjoyed it. And hopefully our listeners have liked coming along the journey uh, and liked, uh, you know, hearing us mispronounce names left and right, all of the above. <laughs> um, if you want more of that, stay tuned because I'm sure I will do it again. <laughs> Um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Jesse, uh, share again with listeners in case they happen to only check out the book episode or what have you, where they can find you online and where they can find your books. Yeah. So you can find me at jessiequack.com. That's J E S S I E K W A K. Um, and that's kind of my hub for everything. I'm also, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Um, you can find those links through that website. All right. So we're going to let you go. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been super fun. Thanks, Jesse. So what's next for Ink to Film? We are going to be doing our Christmas project, and we talked about it, and we decided we want to get into the weird and wonderful world of <laughs> Dr. Seuss. We're going to be covering yeah. How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Yeah, I've heard some uh, some weird stuff about Dr. Seuss, so maybe we'll talk about that <laughs> on the book episode. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to be researching this guy. I'm going to see what what I can find out. I'm sure it's going to be interesting. Um, and we're also going to be covering the film, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which was a 2000 film 
featuring Jim Carrey. Um, we put a poll up on the Council of Inklings on Facebook, and that was what the overwhelming choice was for what people seem to want to to revisit. Um, I think that's the favorite uh, version of this. Yeah. So that's the one we're going to be covering. I'm, I got to say, I'm not surprised. I'm not really surprised at all. Um, this and, and, you know, I have an interesting history with this movie. Like, it just it, it hit me at the perfect time when I was a kid. So okay. I was I've never seen it. it came out. So oh, you haven't. Yeah, I think I've I think I've walked in a room and like seen it on, yeah. but I've never watched it. So I'm I'm excited to try. It. I'm gonna predict that you enjoy it more than you think that you will. That's what I, I like. That's my Jim prediction. Carrey. So I, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if I do. That guy's a yet. performer. That guy is unbelievable. So. He is. You know, I think Ace Ventura. You know, when you see that and you're like, well, how are you gonna like this guy? He's clearly this. Like, yeah, '90s '90s comedy movies probably you know don't hold yeah. up to the, the the comedy that we're putting out today in films and necessarily. But I mean, it had its time. So yeah, but then you, you know, see you stuff like the Truman Show, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless yeah. Mind. Like you see some range from this guy. He's a good. I think he's a good actor, and even even as just a comedic actor. He's he's really talented. So absolutely, we're we're getting into it. <laughs> liar, liar, and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, it's he's he's a fun guy to to talk about. So I think it'll be the first time we've covered anything Jim Carrey related. So maybe we can talk about him a little bit, a little yeah. bit more. Um, the only other episode we have coming out this year is our Last Looks 2019. I can't believe we're going to be doing our third Last Looks episode. It's crazy. Um, so it's look weird. It's yeah, it's crazy. Isn't that wild? I, so it just doesn't feel like that much time has passed. But at the same time, I look back at our catalog and I'm like, damn, yeah. 318 episodes (laughs) um we'll be looking back at all of the stuff that we covered this year in that episode um and you know we'll we'll be talking about it kind of revisiting favorites you know uh, highlights lowlights of this of the year it's usually kind of a low-key episode so so pay attention for that that'll be coming out towards the very end of the month um and that'll be it for us in 2019 we'll probably take a week or two off in 20 in 2020 oh my god i can't believe it's gonna be 2020 and then we'll be back uh you know picking things up again so uh, we hope you join us for sort of our end of the year uh, episodes we have coming up here because they're going to be, I think they're going to be fun. Yeah. I mean, the, you, you just mentioned how, what, the 2020 is coming up and the movie that we're covering coming up is came out in 2000. And when I think of 2000, I think like, oh, that was like, what, like seven or eight years ago? <laughs> yeah, but no, 20 years, years ago. Just a few years ago. Yeah, that's wild. 20 years. Oh, boy. Anyway, yeah, we're getting old. <laughs> Such is life. Um, yep. Anyway, this was a lot of fun. We thank you for joining us for our Expanse coverage. We also wanted to thank our patron, Ben E., for supporting the show for a long time. We know he's a fan of the Expanse. We hope he uh, enjoyed this coverage. If you wanted to find out how to become a patron yourself, go to patreon.com slash ink to film. Find out what kind of stuff we're offering. Your monetary support helps keep this show going, helps keep us covering things week to week, and uh, it really we, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you to Ben. Connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film. And on Facebook, join the Council of Inklings. Uh, we post polls, we post news, we post all kinds of stuff in there. So like our make Christmas sure you poll. check it out. Yeah, our <laughs> Christmas poll was in there as well. So yeah. check that out. Absolutely. And if you would like to help out the podcast in another way, it doesn't cost you any money at all. Leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you're on, whether that's Apple Podcasts or if you just want to go onto Facebook, you can like rate our podcast on there. There's lots of ways to do it. The main thing is that you post something online about the show because that helps us get the word out, helps us get new listeners, which is the biggest hurdle for a podcast our size is to just get people to know about us. So anything you can do to help us in that, you know, to that endeavor is greatly appreciated. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. And thank you to Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts. 
All right. So I'm excited for these final two episodes of the year. It's going to be a nice, uh, cozy holiday coming up. Uh, hopefully everyone is enjoying theirs and we will see you next week. But until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.